All right. John chapter 1, starting at verse 19. Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied, in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now, the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him. Why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied. But among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany, on the other side of the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him, and I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent the day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which, when translated, is Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathaniel asked. Come and see, said Philip. 
When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. He then added, Very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Um, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you that it contains life, that it points us towards the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus. Um, This morning we pray as we come to it and sit under it, Uh, Please show us what your son is like and why he is worthy of all praise. And we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, well, if you open up the leaflet, you'll see at the top left there, I've printed a couple of verses from the end of John's Gospel, from chapter 20. Uh, We saw these last week. John, the author, promises that if you read his account of Jesus' life, And if you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, you will have eternal life in his name. And so for that reason, last week I invited you to consider reading the whole account of John, one-to-one with someone. Uh, It's only 21 chapters, it doesn't take very long. Uh, What you'll discover if you do is that this story of Jesus, it is gripping and it is absorbing in every way. Uh, And in fact, what we're going to do this week is just jump straight into the action Uh, There are four different fast-moving episodes set over four consecutive days, you might have noticed. Uh, They go to the very heart of who Jesus is and the incredible difference that he makes both in life and in death. Well, point one, you'll see there on your handout the forerunner, verses 19 through 28. Let me read this first section again, printed there for you on your handout. Follow along with me. John chapter 1, verse 19. Now, this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. So they asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness Make straight the way for the Lord. So the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, Why then do you baptise if you're not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptise with water, John replied. But among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And all this happened at Bethany, on the other side of the Jordan, where John was baptising. Okay, well, first up in this episode, we meet John the Baptist. Uh, We'd heard about him last week in chapter 1, verses 6 and 15. We also meet the protagonists. We meet his opponents. Uh, You'll see there uh, Jewish leaders in Jerusalem who sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. Uh, Presumably the reason they did so was because John has come to their attention. John has started attracting a following. And crowds are going to him. Now, imagine, if you will that a great preacher, uh, maybe Billy Graham from the days gone by, or maybe John Piper or Tim Keller, imagine they set up a church here in Adelaide. Surely you'd go and check them out, wouldn't you? 
and quite possibly you might even consider joining their church as well. It's okay to admit it, I'd probably do the same. And so with that in mind, they want to know, who is this guy? Who is this John? Look at his answer in verses 23, 23. He tells us both who he is, but also who he's not. He starts with who he's not. He is not the Messiah. He's not Israel's long-expected king, born to deliver the Jews from Roman oppression, the one who will restore the nation to the heights of the glory that it once had under King David. He's not the Messiah. Neither is he Elijah. Elijah, the greatest of Israel's oracles or seers from the Old Testament. And thirdly, neither is he the prophet. He is not Moses, the one who founded their nation, who led them out of slavery in Egypt, who gave them the Ten Commandments. He is none of those things. So who is he? Well, John says, he is the one um, who has come to make straight the way for the Lord. And he quotes Isaiah 40, verse 3. In other words, John is saying that he is the forerunner His role, he's been sent to announce the arrival of someone of extraordinary significance. Someone no less than the Lord himself. Uh, John is the advance party, you might say. Or perhaps to use a different image. uh, It's the image here of um, a road crew, a construction team that needs to widen a road to enable more crowds to come in. Look on screen behind me, there's a picture here, some of you will remember this. When they upgraded the Adelaide Oval a few years ago, they had to put a big bridge over the middle of the Torrens so that the crowds, more people could come and see what was going on. Now, for the record, John was not a port supporter. Okay, that's not the point of the image. Um, He might have been, I suppose. But he is there to announce the arrival of something extraordinary. And it, it leaves us excited, eagerly anticipating who is the guy who's about to come. Yeah, the thing is that we see in verses 24 and 25 that the Pharisees, who've joined the priests and the Levites by now, they're all stuck on the mat, hung up on the matter of John's credentials. So their logic seems to be if John is no more than a forerunner, what right does he have to offer baptism? Now, some background to help make sense of what's going on here. At the time, baptism was seen as the way to express your repentance or your contrition when you'd sinned against God, and when you wanted to say that you were sorry to God. And what happened was that, basically, you went out to the River Jordan, and you got dunked, and the washing with water was meant to symbolically represent the washing away of your sins. Actually, that's the first blank for you to fill in there on your handout. Baptism symbolises repentance. All of which then leads to the very fair question, how can John offer the forgiveness that only God can give? Well, the interesting thing is that in this episode, John doesn't answer their question. He just goes on, verses 26 through 28. He just basically says, doesn't matter who I am, all that matters is who's coming next. And John's argument seems to be that, well... If John is not worthy to untie the straps of that person's sandals, then who really cares who John is? What's intriguing, I think, is that even though John is not allowed to do up Jesus' shoelaces, in John chapter 13, we'll find Jesus washing his disciples' feet. 
So, who is this one that John has come to announce? Well, read on with me, verses 29 through 34. Down the bottom of the left-hand side, the next section. Verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. And then John gave this testimony, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. Well, after John, the warm-up act, the forerunner, If you're expecting someone pretty extraordinary, given his introduction, then what we see immediately, the next day there, what we see, it kind of feels like a letdown, doesn't it? Look, the Lamb of God. Now, why does it feel like a letdown? Well, to put it mildly, lambs might be cute, but they're not particularly impressive. As far as I can tell, no sporting team in history has ever been called the Lambs. You know, the Adelaide Thunderbirds, the Queensland Bulls, the West Coast Eagles. Yet, of course, the Jewish leaders would have instantly grasped what John the Baptist was claiming by describing Jesus as the Lamb of God. Again, the background uh, for context. Uh, In the Old Testament, when you sinned against God, what you did was that you offered a lamb as a sacrifice in your place. Because the only way in which you could be forgiven, the only way you could avoid the rightful consequences of your actions, was for God's judgment to fall, not on you, but on something else. In this case, a lamb whose blood was shed precisely so yours need not be. That's, of course, where we get the phrase, a sacrificial lamb. That's an enormous relief because here's the next blank for you to fill in. Repentance without atonement is pointless. Repentance without atonement is pointless. Here's what I mean. It is no good just being sorry for your sin. Uh, That's, of course, why all those people were coming out to John in the first place. They knew they had a problem with before God. They were sorry for their sin. But repeated repentance without actually being forgiven, all it will do is beat you down and eventually it will break you. You see, anyone who came out to John for water baptism in the Jordan, they left afterwards without any lasting assurance that their sins had actually been dealt with. Because there was no way to properly take away the consequences of their sin. Not until they came to Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the whole world. So, can you see the breathtaking magnitude of the claim that John is making at this point? The Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the whole world... 
That's an extraordinary atoning agent. And in fact, there is nothing more important or significant in our world than this. I mean, imagine for a moment that you found the solution to global warming. Or imagine you found a way to finally make poverty history. Or imagine you found out how you could end war and bring peace on earth. All of those, they would be good things and they would grab our attention. But they are nothing compared to Jesus, the Lamb of God, who can take away the sins of all humankind. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, how on earth can one man do that? How can Jesus do that? Well, the last part of this section, verses 31 through 34, John confirms that Jesus was anointed, sent by God's Holy Spirit. Jesus is God's chosen one. In fact, Jesus is God. We saw that right in the beginning of John chapter 1, remember? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the Word was with God in the very beginning. That's why Jesus, the Lamb of God, He is, you might say, powered up. He is able to atone for sin because only the God who made the world can take away the sins of the world. And later today, at our 6pm gathering, that's what we'll be celebrating when we baptise Adam, who has turned to Christ. Well, before we move on, just notice that this, all of what John is talking about, he, could, he didn't work it out himself. He's not clever enough to do so. It had to be revealed to him by the Spirit. Verse 33. I myself did not know Jesus, but the one who sent me told me. And I think that's just the greatest comfort when it comes to evangelism. You see, it's not up to you and me to convert our family and friends. It's not up to us. Not if it's up to Jesus to reveal himself to them. Instead, all we must do, in fact, all we can do, is testify to what we have seen in Christ. And that's exactly what John's most natural response is. So we come then to point three and the first followers. Uh, This is verses 35 through 51. Uh, Come over to the right-hand side. Let me read the next section. John chapter 1, verses 35 through 42. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who'd heard what John had said and who'd followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John, you'll be called Cephas, which, when translated, is Peter. Well, the action just keeps racing on. Uh, You notice that began, verse 35, the next day. This is the third day now. And once more, John declares who Jesus is. Look, the Lamb of God. 
And when he does, well, straight away, two of John's disciples, uh, it's Andrew and another one who's not named. It's probably John the author. He's pretty shy. He doesn't like to big note himself, but it's probably John the author. Straight away, two of the Baptist disciples, they leave the John the Baptist and they go and follow Jesus. Now, I don't know what you're thinking. You might be thinking, oh, those traitors. Except I'm pretty sure John wasn't that fussed about losing people out of his ministry because he knows that he's just the forerunner. He's nothing compared to the Lamb of God, the Chosen One. This whole last section is all about followers. Actually, you see it there three times. Verse 37, they followed Jesus. Verse 38, following. Uh, Verse 42, followed Jesus. And when Jesus asks his first two followers, verse 38, what do you want? Well, I've got to say, they kind of blow their opportunity, don't they? Wouldn't that be nice? Jesus comes to them them and says, what do you want? (laughs) And here's what they come up with. Uh, uh, Where are you staying, Jesus? Pretty funny, actually. It's kind of one of those rabbit in headlights moments, I think. More charitably, maybe they're just asking, can we come and hang out with you for a bit? Although Jesus' answer is pretty cryptic, isn't it? Jesus' answer, verse 39, come and you will see. Now, is he just going to show them his lodgings? Or is he going to show them more than just that? Well, day three is going to wrap up with a lovely backstory. And you'll see the note there. I've called it, How Simon Came to Be Named Peter. Uh, This is how this section finishes. Uh, Verse 41, the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we found the Messiah. Uh, Notice again how the first followers, they immediately recruit more followers because their natural response is they don't want anyone to miss out. The first thing that Jesus does when Simon starts following him is that he gives him a new name, Peter. And this, I think, is saying to us something about just how significant Jesus is. Jesus has the authority to give a new name because as Jesus has the authority to redefine a person's very identity... Jesus is the one who has the authority to say who they are and who they become. Because Jesus, as we saw last week in chapter 1, printed there on your handout, Jesus even has the right to give people the name. Jesus even even can give the right to become children of God. I wonder if you've ever thought about choosing a new name for yourself. And if you did, what it would be and what it would represent? I've often thought about um, choosing the name for myself of Melchizedek. Uh, Not only because Melchizedek, it means king of righteousness. But I've always found myself wondering what it would be like to introduce introduce yourself as a party, as Melchizedek or Melzed. What incredible authority Jesus must have if he can rename this person, we're going to see that as he now calls followers directly. Last section, verses 43 through 51. John chapter 1, verse 43. The next day, this is day four now, the next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. 
Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. And Philip found Nathanael and told him, we found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. <laughs> Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Well, come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still standing under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You'll see greater things than that. And he added, very truly I tell you, you'll see heaven open in the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Well, as you can see throughout this, the next day, the next day, the next day, this is day four, the speed, it kind of takes our breath away. And just as Andrew found his brother Simon, now Jesus finds Philip, calls him to follow him, and immediately Philip does the same as what Andrew did before. He goes and finds someone else to tell them. He goes and finds his mate Nathaniel. Because, once again, I'm sure you're getting the picture, the natural response of Jesus' followers is to want to make more followers. Philip goes even further in describing who Jesus is to Nathanael. Not just the Lamb of God, not just God's chosen one or Messiah. Notice what Philip says. Philip says, verse 45, the one Moses wrote about in the law, about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, unfortunately, Nathanael is one of those killjoys, one of those people who could always find the negative because his only comment is, Nazareth, can anything good come out of there? Uh, I sort of imagine him spitting on the ground as he says the word Nazareth. Now, it might just be the parochialism of someone who comes from Bethsaida. Uh, think, if you will, of when you meet a Melbourneian in the eyes of an Adelaidean. But, of course, it blinds Nathaniel to everything good Philip is saying about Jesus. Philip says that Moses wrote about Jesus, the prophets wrote about Jesus, in fact Jesus is even son of Joseph, which means that Jesus is royalty. He is descended from the great King David. Now Jesus' response actually is delightfully ambiguous. Verse 48, verse 48, uh, sorry verse 47, Jesus says, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. It's ambiguous because I wonder if Jesus is basically saying to Nathaniel, yep, I agree with you, mate. There is nothing good in Nazareth. I'm so glad I got out of that dump. Or maybe Jesus is just being a little bit ironic. Maybe he's trying to help Nathaniel pause and to listen to what he's actually saying. I'm not really sure. But what's most interesting, I think, is that somehow Jesus knew what Nathanael was saying about him, what he'd said to Philip in private, even before they had met. I wonder if it's a glimpse of Jesus' divine and supernatural power. Because if it is, it could also mean that Jesus can see straight into Nathanael's heart. 
We're not actually told, although Nathaniel's reaction suggests he at least somewhat grasps that something awesome has just taken place. Notice how he now acknowledges Jesus. In verse 49, he is the Son of God. He is the King of Israel. And this last episode, well, it wraps up with Jesus making an extraordinary promise to Nathaniel. Verses 15 and 51, when he says, you'll see greater things than that, he's suggesting you ain't seen nothing yet in John's book of signs. Uh, the reference to heaven open and the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man, uh, they are both reminders, I think, of the Spirit who descended on Jesus in verse 32, as well as of Jacob's ladder back in Genesis 28, and I've given you the reference there. Both are incidents that represent God's endorsement or God's validation of Jesus' identity. Jesus really is the Messiah, the King of Israel, the Lamb of God, the Son of God, God's chosen one. In fact, the greatest sign of all will be his resurrection from the dead after he's taken away the sins of the world. I want to say to you once again, if you would like to see these greater things, then please accept our invitation. Come and read John one-to-one with someone. Come and see who Jesus really is. Well, let me finish then at point four. So what for us? What we've seen so far is that Jesus is gaining a following. But I want to say two things about evangelism, and they're both there blanks for you to fill in at the end. Firstly, evangelism is slow. Evangelism is slow. In John chapter 1, Jesus starts with two followers. He gets Andrew and one other. Then he gets one more follower. He gets Simon. Then he gets one more follower. That's Philip. And then he gets one more follower. That's Nathaniel. Evangelism is slow. Revival comes slowly. It takes time. Not everyone immediately believes. Look at Nathaniel's initial skepticism. And I say that because actually I think that's comforting. Whether you are trying to patiently share about Jesus over a long period of time with a friend, or if you're someone who's still trying to work him out, it takes time and it is slow. But the other thing I want to say about evangelism, this is the second blank fit to fill in. Evangelism is slow, but evangelism is also our natural response. Evangelism is slow, but it is also our natural response. That is, discovering who Jesus is always leads to testifying about who Jesus is. Discovering who Jesus is, it always leads to testifying about who Jesus is. Whether that's John the Baptist telling his disciples, or Andrew telling his brother Simon, or Philip telling his mate Nathaniel. One last time, remember, the first thing Andrew did was find his brother Simon. Evangelism is always our natural response. It's born out of excitement. It's born out of the conviction that what we have found is so good. We cannot bear the thought of anyone else missing out. Let me finish just with a couple of observations about what's not said about evangelism in John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, there is no mention 
of the first followers having any formal qualifications or training courses in evangelism. Those are good things. But as I keep saying, evangelism is the most natural response in the world. Just to carry on about the good things in your life with whatever words you prefer and whatever way your family and friends might be willing to listen. It's also interesting that in John chapter 1, there's no mention that any of those first followers were particularly worried about how they'd be received when they shared their good news. You almost get the sense that if they'd been laughed at, or even if they'd been rejected, they wouldn't have taken it personally. They'd just be sad for those who are missing out. And finally, in John chapter 1, there is no mention of the first followers' vocation, of their profession, of their job, of what they did for a living. It's true, we know from other accounts that they were fishermen, but I wonder if John is silent about their day jobs, because at one level it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter what you get paid to do for a living, not if all followers are witnesses and if evangelism is always our natural response. In a sense, there's nothing special about the commissioning today of our new ministry apprentices. It's terrific and it's right for us to do, but there's nothing particularly special because all of us are followers of Christ, which means all of us are on about making more followers of Christ, even if some are set aside to equip the whole body to do that better. Well, let me ask you then, this week, who do you want to go and find and then bring to meet Jesus? Who could you invite to come and see this most amazing person you have ever met? Let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your Son We thank you for all that you did and are doing and will bring to completion in and through him. We pray that in this week ahead, you might give us opportunities to testify to how wonderful he is and why he is worthy of every person's life and praise. Amen.